So last night we had a live and I had a few people come in with a couple of questions and things about, you know, the topic, which was Brian Coburg. We were going back in time, going back to the press conference. And, you know, there were some great questions that came through. You know, we had a lot of folks who had um, a thought that maybe perhaps Brian Coburger could be innocent. And one question that came through that I thought, you know, needs to be answered is the one by, I think his name was Mr. Rafasta. He said something to the effect like, you know, Dylan Mortensen stated she heard noises while Brian Coburger was still driving around. Now, I know that those times are approximations. And right now that's, you know, the PCA is the only thing we can go by. I anticipate once the trial comes that we're going to get a, a more narrow, dine, narrow down timeline. You know, they spoke about Kaylee and Maddie coming home at 145 and they used approximately. Now, Ellen Gonzalez's family came out and said, no, it's 156, 156. And so because they came out and were objective about the time frame, that's when the uh, prosecution or law enforcement changed the time in which they got home. Now, I think that was strategic, you know, to keep things relatively close, but not exact for a couple of reasons. One, uh, there's probably inconsistencies with the time it was. You might have a surveillance video that says it's 404 a.m. and 30 some odd seconds. And then you may have another surveillance video that says it's 405 and it's showing the same thing. Uh, you also have uh, the, the time on the phones. You know, if Dylan woke up and, and turned on her phone and it said a specific time and it wasn't in sync with the uh, with the videos that are outside, it would be very difficult to determine which one was correct and which one you're going to be using at that point. And when it comes down to trial, you'll be able to show those things and and, and be able to pull those kind of videos together if those things are are happening. You know, to be honest with you, it's not uncommon. You know, sometimes clocks run faster, slower. Some are connected to the web. So, you know, depending on where they're at or connected, that's where it's going to be as far as what the time is. I think that's one reason why they use approximations and they were so vague. At this point, it does bring up some sort of reasonable doubt when it comes to Brian Koberger. Now, that's today. Once we get into trial and they start showing all these things and they start showing, you know, this clock and, and this video here and, and this is the exact time on the phone you know, and those type of things. And they're able to synchronize those movements uh, together. And you can see exactly how they went about. That's when we'll find out the exact time and manner in which these things occurred. And when Dylan actually did wake up hearing those noises, was it exactly four o'clock or was it, you know, 409? I think that's one of the things uh, that we'll see there, you know, to this point, I, I think it actually helps out the defense a little bit. So now the defense can, at least at this point, come out and say, hey, you know, not everything is pointing directly at him, I guess. So, you know, you can't have an unfair trial at this point, right? You know, they're not, you know, by putting approximations, they're not bearing him, so to speak. That's what I was thinking. Just kind of food for thought, going back and thinking about that question. And actually, you know, thought about it all night. I mean, I knew the answer to it. I mean, I know why they do it, but it's just kind of hard to explain it sometimes, especially when it's on the spot. And I wasn't, you know, really prepared to answer that question. You know, when it comes down to trial, it's not going to matter, you know, what what's on the PCA at that point, to be honest with you. It's kind of like the locations that they have on his cell phone that they use to get a warrant, you know, the triangulations. You know, everybody, and we've heard it everywhere, you know, there's valleys, there's mountains, there's all these things. And that's going to throw off that triangulation. It's not going to be very accurate. You're going to have, a, you know, a radius of a couple of miles. You just need enough to say that uh, you have reason to believe that this person may have committed the crime and that uh, there's evidence pertaining to that crime here. It doesn't have to show complete evidence or, or whatnot or, or beyond reasonable doubt. So those locations were used to get the warrants. Now, when you go to trial, you don't need those. Now, the only thing you're going to argue with those at this point is if it was, you know, unconstitutional or something or done illegally, uh, which I don't think it was, then you can throw out the warrants that were acquired, which would be, you know, later on, like the GPS locations and things like that. That's how you get those thrown out. And that's why that is important in the case. But when it comes down to trial, it's not important anymore. 
you know, when you go down a trial and, and if they have the locations in, the rest of it doesn't really matter. It's not going to be brought up. You know, nobody's going to say we triangulated, you know, Brian Koberger. No, what they're going to say is that we used his GPS locations and his phone data and it pinpointed him here at this location within an accuracy of, of a foot. So they're going to know exactly where he was and when he was, where he was. We don't know that, you know, until trial. I mean, that information, you know, or wasn't known to police until after his arrest, right? After his arrest is when they got his phone and and the warrants for his locations and things like that. So we wouldn't have seen all that information on the PCA because the PCA was done before the arrest. Now, I hope all that makes sense. With the FBI being involved as they had, as they were, there was a special agent and they can actually do a lot more. Let me read that again. With FBI being involved, as long as there was a special agent, then they can actually do a lot more. Maybe. I mean, I, I don't know the policies of the FBI or things like that. I, I would assume that uh, special agents probably do have a little bit more access or, or freedom to do things uh, and, and more freedom for involvement. But I don't know. Um, but when it comes to like, like, for instance, the IGG, the policy that they have in place as far as not getting involved and in utilizing the IGG in, in current cases where there's still the possibility of investigating, you know, there's still suspects and stuff like that to go through. The reason they do it is because of a lack of resources, right? There's only a few labs within, you know, the FBI that can do these type of things. And, and they cover cases across the United States. If every local department had an unsolved incident and they had DNA and they needed an IgG done, they would send it to the FBI and, and get it done quicker. But then that would, that would bury the FBI's labs. And then eventually within not very long, it'll, it'll become a situation where everything's backed up. And you won't get your stuff for a very long time. So it's only in a situation where there is no suspect. They don't know who it is. And even if they did have a suspect, there's no point in using the IgG. The IgG is merely something to point at somebody to go look for, to go and get their DNA. It doesn't necessarily say that that person committed any crime, which is why it's not usable in court, because it wasn't something that was directly connecting. You know, it wasn't something that was tested from Brian Koberger uh, to the knife sheath. Knife sheath. What they did was they got an STR profile, put it into their system of uh, approved, you know, uh, like I'm gonna call it ancestry. It's not ancestry, but it's a, a system like that where people have approved to allow their data or DNA to be used to testify, uh, test against potential um, crimes. And they were able to point at Brian, you know, the police still had to go and acquire his DNA legally. You know, they couldn't just go bring him in and say, all right, let's swap you. You know, this didn't say it was definitely him. It wasn't a direct match. So they had to go acquire his DNA legally and, um, and then match it that way which they did. And so, you know, like I said, the IgG, it's not admissible, which, yeah, that's why they do, or it makes that argument more futile when it comes to, you know, the IgG and how it was done or, or conducted. When it comes to like fruit of the poisonous tree and, and losing evidence, you know, you can lose evidence based on something that was done wrong or improper, right? And it starts off at that moment. Whatever you found from that situation is no longer inadmissible. Doesn't mean you can't find it from another you know, avenue. So let's just say they say, you know, the IgG is thrown out and everything found after the IgG is also thrown out. So you can't use it. But the STR profile was already created and they already picked up Brian Koberger's daddy's trash. That's not illegal. The STR profile that's there is not illegal. So when they test Brian Koberger daddy's DNA to the sheath and it came back as the father of the suspect, that's enough to get warrants for his locations, get warrants for his phone, get warrants for his uh, DNA himself. I mean, that's enough warrants to get everything. You know, that's why on that one page where it says, even if the IgG gets thrown out, everything still works or whatever. It still has probable cause because it falls back on itself. It doesn't matter. Even if you throw out the DNA and everything else with it, 
they still picked up his daddy's DNA out of the trash can. And they still contest that to the STR profile that they created before the IgG was created. In fact, I spoke with Ms. Vargas, Gabriela Vargas, the defense's own IgG witness on truth and transparency. And she informed us that the STR profile has nothing to do with the IgG and that the STR profile is created first. And that those in the IgG or those that um, create those trees get, they have to have an STR profile first to do their job. So if you cut that tree down right there at the IgG, you still have a, a lot of branches left from the STR profile that they can go and get back into the same avenue. So I hope that uh, that makes sense. I'm still baffled with the number of people that still need a PCA to them. What's the need of a PCA versus trial? You think there was a key witness that we don't know about? I think there could be. Just think about who was there. We know that uh, there was a door dasher there around the same time that Brian Koberger allegedly was there. Is it possible that that person may have seen, you know, that white Elantra pass by? If Koberger was in that car or whoever was in that car was looking at the house and, and singularly focused on the house, is it possible that they didn't see a person sitting in a car after they had just dropped off or were just about to drop off, you know, a meal at the house? You know, in that tunnel vision and in that moment, because of the way that vehicle was driving slowly, is it possible that that would have caught the attention of the DoorDash driver. And if it did, and if the DoorDash driver saw this vehicle pass, maybe it, maybe they pulled up because they don't just get out of the vehicle. You know, they pull up. I think they have to do something on their phone. I'm not a DoorDasher. I've never done it. So I don't know, but I've seen, and when I've ordered DoorDash, I've seen them parked out there for about a minute and then drop off the food. They're out there for about a minute or so, and then they leave. That interaction is typically about three to four minutes. Brian Koberger was absent of that area for about six minutes. So it's possible, you know, this person... I don't know if it's a male or female may have arrived there as the vehicle was passing and maybe it passed again and that may have caught the attention. And again, like I said, focusing on the house, you know, maybe the DoorDash driver did see this person you know, in the car. Maybe he didn't have a mask on. Perhaps this DoorDasher didn't know who Brian Koberger was or had never seen him, but was able to recognize him after he was arrested as the person that she saw in the car or he. I don't know the gender of the DoorDasher. So that, that's very well possible. I don't know if that's true or not. I've heard it's likely. I'll put it that way. But, you know, I've been asked before other things that I know that most people don't. And that might be one of them. Do you think the reason they were so quickly to state it was targeted was because there were two roommates untouched, meaning they killed who they were after and left the others? I think that's probably a possibility. You know, that that, that probably played a role in it. If you listen to the, the, the press conferences early on, they said it was, a you know, it seemed like a crime of passion type of thing. And there was nothing that appeared to be, a, be, be stolen. So it didn't appear to them that it was a robbery. And then after a few days, they quickly started to change their tune to it could be something else. And that tells me right there, just just that alone tells me that there probably wasn't a lot of evidence out there to point one way or another of what this was once they lost the fact that it wasn't, you know, a family violence type of situation, a domestic situation between one of the victims and their ex-boyfriend. You know, because in this type of situations where you have murders and things like that, you know, usually it's somebody close. It's very rare you find somebody who's just a BTK type of person. Now, there's probably more of those people out there than we know of. But when you look at the amount of crimes that happen where somebody's life is taken, it's usually by somebody they know, majority of it, if not almost all of it. And, you know, you had a situation where one of the victims who may may have had the most injuries. I mean, that's something that uh, the Gonzalez has had alluded to. You know, she has the most injuries. She has an ex-boyfriend. She was hanging out with her ex-boyfriend that night at the corner club. She had been seeing other guys. She was on dating apps. She was on Tinder. We know that from phone apps warrants. We know that she's gone on dates with other guys. We know that she was calling him at three in the morning. You know, that's what you know right off the bat, right? Those are probably what you know after 48 hours. Based on that, you probably think you got a clear cut. You know, this is the guy. Then they start going through his phone. 
they they find out that you know his phone may have been active or not active. I don't know. It was at his house, which wasn't down that far. But you have to think to yourself because at this point you're probably seeing a white Elantra passing by, and you may not be able to identify what it is, but you see a white sedan at that moment because you haven't seen all the video. That's the other thing is that some people get the idea that all the evidence was there day one, just kind of laid out there on the table for them. No, they got to do a lot of work. So early on, you probably see that there's this white car passing by. You know, they thought it was a possibly a Sentra. So in the early days, you're probably seeing uh, images from the side of the vehicle, side shots, nothing concrete from head on, which makes sense because early on, you're probably seeing ca cameras from, from homes. Those are probably what's picking up the car first. And most likely, or most of the time, those cameras are facing, you know, the street, you know, the, it's runs, <laughs> the house faces towards the street. So the cars that are passing is usually profile images, right? So then you wonder, why is this vehicle traveling around at three something in the morning going all over the place? And where did this guy get this vehicle if he only lived down the street and he was mad enough to go in there and take the lives of three other people? And yet there's no evidence of it. We have the sound from this tape and there's no yelling. There's no screaming. There's no sound of rage. There's no sound of an offender who is enraged. You know, a person that's enraged and willing to do all those things really typically don't drive around three times uh, before they get off. Those are all signs and symptoms of somebody who's, you know, in a thrill out of what they're doing. But to answer your question, I just think that early on, it was probably because of the information and the evidence that they had in the moment. And they backtracked it pretty quickly. And also... Is probably in efforts to calm down the masses. I think that's the intent of the case is IgG comparison. It's been four years with no luck. They started at Michigan Crime Lab, so it will be interesting to see how that case works out. I'm not sure what case you're referring to. I mean, I missed something. Uh, do you think his dad was aware of what he did? I think this family were, were suspicious. Without getting too much into it, I, I think that, that there was some suspicion from the family and that, you know, those things like him wearing gloves and 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 being weird around that time wasn't normal, you know, f behavior for him. And that, that was one of the things that made his family members suspicious. You'd be surprised who's working with who, needless to say. If the doors were locked, who unlocked them? Or Olivia said they did everything right, even locked the doors. Yeah, but Olivia Olivia wasn't there. She's going based off of uh, um, emotion and, and things that she, she how, how would she know if they lock the doors or not? Um, I asked Christy's mom, I mean, Christy's mom, I asked Kaylee's mom, Christy, about this, you know, if they walk the dog or, or any of those things. And if if Olivia had seen it and she was emphatic, no, never happened. You know, you, you got some people who are emotional, obviously. I mean, they just lost their daughter, especially in the time when she said that in, or in Olivia's situation, her sister, in, in a moment where it'd been very recent and emotions are flying. People are probably they're probably blaming everybody and anybody at certain points. It's It's not uncommon. You know, they've said some other things that just doesn't jive, but it's more like, like, for instance, um, Kaylee fighting back and put up a fight and things like that. I, I, I'd like to think that that happened, but there isn't any evidence of that. You know, there isn't any you know, DNA under her nails or on her fist or hands or hair or any of those things, because if there was, they would use that and not the DNA on the sheath. There isn't sounds of somebody struggling for their life on the audio from 50 feet away. Is it possible? Yeah. But I also think that you have to be leery about the accuracy of things when people are emotional, because sometimes it's not very accurate. And, and it's, it's it's unfair to them because like the news media will get a hold of them and, and, and then not just them, but any victim and then ask them all these questions and on the spot while they're nervous, they're frustrated, they're upset, they're sad, they're angry. And a lot of times, and this is one of the complaints that Christy had told me is that and, and that they stopped doing those interviews live was because of that. 
You know, they'd ask him questions, they'd get emotional and answer him things out of emotion that sometimes weren't accurate or maybe not so much accurate, but Christy told me that, that they asked him a specific question and I can't remember what it was off the top of my head. I have to go back and hear it. And he answered and Steve answered in a certain way. And she goes in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm not sure where you're going with that. And then afterwards he explained it to her and she was like, all right, well, it makes sense. But why did you have to answer it like that? You could answer it in a different manner. And that's when they decided, you know, live interviews probably aren't smart. Now, I don't know if they continue to do them or not. That's what she told me at the time. Is there a chance things get unsealed before trial? Unlikely. I, I don't see why they, they would. It almost made it seem like with BK on a previous date to Kaylee, I have a comment to her, make make me some tacos or whatever. Yeah, um, I talked to Kay, uh, Christy about that. She doesn't know who that was. You know, she told police about that information. She gave police that information. From my understanding, they checked out who that was and that person was cleared, but she has no idea who it was. She said that it was somebody that she had known. She had uh, gone, I think, to, to school with her or had been in school with. I'm, I'm not sure, but she said she had knew, known him for a while and that Christy didn't know him, but that Kaylee had known him. It wasn't like a stranger or anything like that. But apparently, you know, she went over and she said something to the effect that she was hungry. And, and he said, you know, he called her called her a bitch and said, make your own tacos or something like that. And um, and she left and uh, and called her mom and told her mom about it and then started talking about Jack and how Jack wouldn't do that. And, you know, and she really thought that they were on their way to getting back, getting back together. Mama, I never believed the grub truck, but I have wondered the killers may have known their routine and knew they went to the grub truck after the bar and used a live stream to know they were going home. That's possible. The only thing about that is that would require a lot of surveillance with tablets, phones, things like that, computers and searches and stuff like that. You know, he probably had burner devices. I wouldn't do those searches connected to my IP address, though, which would be connected to my Wi-Fi. I'd have to do them somewhere else. If if I was Brian Cooper trying to get, get away with the crime and you had to do this investigating part for a guy that went through driving an hour out of his way to elude the investigation of him going straight back to Pullman, you know, touching things as little as possible, not getting DNA or not having DNA in his car tells me that he, he planned this out quite a bit in every detail possible, except for taking his phone and leaving the sheath. But again, people say, you know, he's so smart or he did this. How could he leave the sheath behind? He should have noticed that when he walked out of the house, BTK left his gun behind and he had to go back. He like left and had to go back to go get his gun. Huge part of the crime, huge, huge thing. And, and it wasn't his first murders either. And so this was an experienced guy that left his, his gun behind. You know, these people are smart. They're not perfect. There's a difference. They don't want the person to get off on a technicality. I agree. School Wi-Fi. You see, that's where I think it's possible it was the school's Wi-Fi. That's what I would have done if I was him. You know, there's a lot of people that have access to it. It's, it's probably free to the students without logging in if you're in a certain location. You know, that might be why he was on Nevada Street. You know, that's when he turned his phone off and things like that. Maybe perhaps he turned his phone off at that moment so that his phone wouldn't connect to the Wi-Fi at the university. That's why he turned it off at that moment. Because if it connects to the Wi-Fi at that moment, there should be a record of that, right? I wonder if there is. That'll be interesting. But yeah, I would have used the school Wi-Fi on some burner devices. I would never have allowed something that I was you know, planning on even to step foot in my house or an apartment. If it accidentally connected to something or somewhere, and you're screwed. So, you know, you'd probably want to keep those devices somewhere else. Maybe doing research was why he kept going to the Idaho campus where he had been seen. Uh, I mean, maybe I, I don't know what research you'd be doing that would be having him, you know, at the victim's residence. Again, we we don't know exactly how far or where he was right now. The law enforcement do. And we will know in trial because of those uh, warrants that they have. What do you think about BK going back? 
the morning of? Well, there's two things, right? Persons or most serial offenders, you know, have all stated they've gone back to relive the crime. Now, obviously, couldn't have gone back once the crime was revealed and police were there because they would be writing down and logging down license plates and things like that. So it may have been something that was twofold. You know, he went back because maybe perhaps he realized he lost or forgot the sheath, went back to see if there was a possibility of making entry without anybody noticing him and you know, realized that by the time he got back there at 930 in the morning on a Sunday morning in an area where a lot of people go and walk, you know, that Banfield area right there, people walk there, people take their dogs out there. Not everybody in that area is a college student that parties throughout the night. So you probably have, you know, some of your older folks out there walking about. So he probably had no opportunity to get into the house. And the second fold of that is to relive the crime he committed. You know, this was the only opportunity he was going to have. Like I said, once that uh, crime was, was reported, he was screwed. Now, the third reason probably is that he couldn't find any news about the case without, you know, because he couldn't directly search it. Right. He may have just put, you know, Moscow News all morning on things, trying to figure out, you know, if they picked up on it. Now, because he couldn't search, you know, Moscow murders, four students murdered, stabbings, if they hadn't discovered the crime yet. So that's another reason why he probably had to go back. It was probably for three reasons. All righty, guys, it is time for me to go. I want to say thank you all. And I appreciate everybody who has joined us and had your questions to peace out.